Reflections on Dante's Divine Comedy, The Inferno, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 8. So Dante, as he encountered the three beasts, encounters three temptations, three ways of trying to revive the poetic engine to get the creative tensions going. History and politics, forgetfulness in the River Lethe, and culture, and rejects, and it rejects or is rejected by each of them. And then he must do something else. Again, one more quote from uh, Helen Vendler about Wallace Stevens: "The partial truths, earlier so eagerly embraced as a solution for the absence of authority." now rightly take on the impoverished colors appropriate to them. I think of the green cloth at Verona. Instead of nostalgically imitating in platonic superlatives the very consolation they were meant to forego. That's quite a complicated sentence. But the point is that she's, she's saying Wallace Stevens uh, got beyond it, didn't try to go back and resolve it in terms of the, some of those earlier uh, ways, didn't try to get the, the show on the road the way it had always done before, was willing now to move on. Dante, very quickly, because we want to get to the end of this, in Canto 16, he meets some more of the Sodomites. They are po prominent political figures uh, in Florence. Dante is very moved by them, and he's told to respect them. And then, he and then he comes to the precipice, and they hear the water roaring down the precipice. In the second of four quartets, uh, East Coker, uh, T.S. Eliot said, If to be warm, then I must freeze, and quake in frigid purgatorial fires of which the flame is roses and the smoke is briars. The flame is roses, but the smoke is briars. And if I'm in the smoky place, I've got the choice of backing out or stepping in. But the flame is roses. And that liminal place, that's where Dante is, that transitional place is the place of smoke. And the tradition's deepest insight is that the flame is roses. So take a leap. So some of the strangest and most stunning lines in the Inferno, almost exactly midway through it, around my waist I had a cord as girdle, and with it once I thought I should be able to catch the leopard with the painted hide. And after I had loosened it completely, just as my guide commanded me to do, I handed it to him, knotted and coiled, at this he wheeled around toward his right and cast it at some distance from the edge straight down into the depth of the ravine. And surely something strange must here reply, I said within myself to this strange sign, the sign my, the sign my master follows with his eye. The leopard with the painted hide, perhaps I, did, I should have made this point a little clearer. The leopard with the painted hide is what Dante had hoped to cap to snare with his with that belt. That's the leopard of of uh, incontinence, the leopard of lust, 
So he had taken that belt as a way of taking the vow. Eliot says, The dove descending breaks the air with flame of incandescent terror of which the tongues declare the one discharge from sin and error, the only hope or else despair lies in the choice of pyre or pyre to be redeemed from fire by fire. It's either death or death. To be consumed by fire or fire. Well, um, Dante throws his cord off, takes his cord off, th Virgil throws it in. The cord, it's hard to know. It's very possible Dante was a member of the Third Order of Franciscans, would have worn a habit with a censure around it. The symbol of the censure is the vow uh, of poverty, chastity, and obedience, primarily of chastity. And Virgil says, you want to get off this dead plane? Take the cord off. The cord represents, I think, the attempt to achieve righteousness and rectitude by an act of will, by taking a vow. I'm going to be good. I'm going to behave myself. I'm not going to break any rules. It's that. It's it's what Paul discovered really about the law. And halfway through the inferno, Virgil says, if you want to go deeper, you better take the cord off. You better take it off and throw it away. That, the attempt to achieve rectitude that way, bottoms out right here. And it keeps the lid on all that stuff that's underneath Dante said, faced with the truth that seems a lie, a man should always close his lips as long as he can. To tell it shames him even though he's blameless. Because what happens? Up from the pit, through the dense and darkened air, I saw a figure swimming, rising up <coughs> enough to bring amazement to the firmest heart. I want to, I'll come back to that in a second. If you take that belt off and throw it away, the sin, in other words, sublimating all that energy is the very thing that has led you to this barrenness. The reason you have run out of energy is because you're sublimating it. Because the available energy, you have all, just consumed all the available energy which is, which is uh, ethically untainted. Now, any energy you... you if you need more energy than that, you're going to have to deal with some that is ethically tainted. That is to say, you're going to have to deal with all that stuff that you stuffed into the unconscious in order to become an upright citizen. And the monster of fraud comes up out of the pit. You take that cord off and the monster comes. The monster of deceit and one realizes that one's life in so many ways has been a facade. And nobody wants to take that belt off. See? 
It's been, in many ways, a pretense, even to oneself. In the Apocryphal Gospel of Thomas, Jesus says, if you know what is within you, what is within you will save you. If you don't know what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. Here's the monster. A figure swimming, rising up enough to bring amazement to the firmest heart, like one returning from the waves where he went down to loose an anchor snagged upon a reef or something else hid in the sea who stretches upward and draws in his feet. Notice the simile. It is one who has worked loose the anchor. When Dante took the cord off and threw it into the pit, the anchor was worked loose. And the monster came up and he had a way of getting from that barren plain on with the journey. It's very important here to see, working loose the anchor. You can't work loose the anchor without facing the monster of deceit. And you can't get off the plane of barrenness without taking a look at that. And what happens if you don't? What happens if you try? Capanius said, uh, the one I was in life, I am in death. Sylvia Plath has a poem about a mirror. Second stanza goes like this. Now I am a lake. A woman bends over me, searching my reaches for what she really is. Then she turns to those liars the candles or the moon. I see her back and reflect it faithfully. She rewards me with tears and an agitation of hands. I am important to her. She comes and goes. Each morning it is her face that, re that replaces the darkness. In me she has drowned a young girl, and in me an old woman rises toward her day after day like a terrible fish. To work loose that anchor and to have that thing come on up out of there. Eliot says in the last section of Little Gidding, and any action is a step to the block, to the fire, down the sea's throat, or to an illegible stone. And that is where we start. We die with the dying, see they depart, and we go with them. We are born with the dead, see they return and bring us with them. What we call the beginning is often the end. And to make an end is to make a beginning. Dante has to abandon, not the cord, but the whole way of operating in life which the cord represents. The attempt to be, the attempt to achieve rectitude by an act of will, which sooner or later involves deceit to oneself. 
And these famous lines in Eliot's poem, We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. The Franciscans, of course, were prominent for having uh, for their the simplicity of their lives. <coughs> I don't know if this is conscious or not, but it seems to me that when towards the very end of Little Gidding, Eliot says refers to this transformation <coughs> as a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. He might be referring to the taking off of the Franciscan corps. Well, I want to talk a little bit uh, in a minute or two about uh, fictions, um, and maybe it's appropriate to start with this one called the ego. I want to use the term briefly when we get started this morning, but uh, I, I just wanted to uh, share with you a little analogy that occurred to me as I was thinking about this week. Uh, as you know, Jung studied uh, medieval alchemy, much to the chagrin of some of his uh, 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 intellectual colleagues uh, because they considered it to be pretty crude stuff. Uh, it turned out that the crudeness of it was the very thing that Jung liked about it. Uh, other people who regarded alchemy by and large as a, as a kind of, uh, as the nursery school version of chemistry, um, didn't understand Jung because he was regarding it as the graduate school course in psychology. Uh, and the reason it was so, uh, the very thing they didn't like about it was that these people were, were uh, embarrassingly naive about the chemical processes. Uh, what Jung said was that it is the naivete that they have with regard to chemistry which makes their work so significant psychologically because they projected uh, onto the chemical operations um, in blissful ignorance of what was actually happening chemically, not always, but it was that blissful ignorance that allowed them to project uh, in an unqualified and uh, unself-conscious way, all of the psychic stuff. So he says, here in the alchemical writings, especially the good ones, we have what, what amounts to the X-ray of the human psyche. Well, I thought of that analogy, so that, so that terms like the coagulatio and the saludio and the mortificatio and all of the chemical marriage and the, so on and so forth, these were, uh, these were uh, uh, ways of getting at a mystery which for which these were just metaphors. Well, th what I thought about this week was how it is that maybe the tables are turning and that in historical hindsight, a 20th century psychologist uh, will be seen to be uh, as naive ontologically as the alchemists were chemically. And uh, they could, with great self-confidence and assurance, use these uh, these fictions like ego and self and shadow and anima and so on and so forth and transference and all the rest of it. Uh, and it is their, uh, uh, collectively, by the way, this is the, I don't want to cast aspersions on the whole uh, uh, 
a, a whole profession. But at any rate, it is the it is the naivete with regard to the fundamental ontological mystery of being uh, that gives these terms some value for us, because uh, that same mystery of the nature of our being and our existence is projected onto these terms. Psychology is at least as fascinating as, as alchemy. And so if one uh, swims in the psychological paradigm uh, and uses all the terminology to sort out that paradigm, there may be another Archimedean point outside of that paradigm that looks in on that operation and sees it as being more meaningful than the people doing it understand. Uh, and so it was Jung's appreciation of, of the alchemist, and it may be some future cultural anthropologist's appreciation of the psychologist, that like, like children, we are all children. That like children, they were playing around, and it was the very naivete of their play that revealed all the truth that was there. Uh, so what I'm trying to do is to, is to, is to uh, convince myself to use words like ego uh, as though they meant something. Uh, and I'm increasingly having difficulty doing that. <laughs> but it, this is part of what we, I want us to talk about today, because I think it's part of what uh, Dante's facing uh, in, in his poem right now. But anyway, all right, just to talk, just to use the word ego. That's just my way of... To go back to the end of Canto 16, pick up a stitch there, that's where uh, Dante tried to uh, make movement in his journey and couldn't except that finally Virgil told him to take the cord off around his waist and throw it into the pit. And the cord had been, I think probably the easiest way to perceive the cord for us is to see the cord as a symbol of the ego formation stage of existence. And most of us are never very clearly apprised by our culture that that is a stage. Most of us come to regard it as the thing itself. And so it comes quite as a shock to us that that stage is, uh, terminates or should terminate in the ordinary course of events. Uh, this probably corresponds to what Jung calls the second half of life. Uh, certainly Dante's poem, which is, in the fictional sense, happening at the age 35, which happened to be the age that Jung chose for this process to begin, uh, uh, reinforces this way of appreciating this, this image, I think. So he takes the cord off, meaning that the ego formation stage is over. The ego formation stage might be, there's many things to be said about it, but it might, we might describe it as the attempt to arrive at personhood without going to the mountain. And the point has come in Dante's life, in the journey, in the pilgrimage to, 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 the, to the mystery of being, that he must pass on beyond that stage. And he throws the cord in, and I don't think necessarily we could, th this could be cause and effect here. We're getting into the realm where cause and effect are... Our, our fictional conveniences, but not the way things are. But in any case, the cord goes into the pit and the monster of fraud comes up out of the pit. Now, I, I, would, I would encourage us maybe to think about this this way. Part of the discovery that happens at the moment 
when the ego formation stage is over, when my attempt to arrive at personhood without going to the mountain has failed, and I take the cord off out of desperation and throw it into the pit, the reason it's fraud is, I think, twofold. First of all, because the ego that has not been to the mountain is a fraud. There's all of this stuff that the ego has not only not assimilated, uh, has not owned up to, but is blissfully ignorant of. Stuff in what we call, another fiction, the unconscious. Uh, dimensions, of aspects of my vitality, which I have simply not touched. And so I cannot be fully alive without recourse to them. So the ego is a fraud in that sense. And I think it is at this point that Dante has to face the fraudulent element in his existence. And and uh, how we, in uh, in whatever way we negotiate these, these important turning points or crises in our lives, we come to the point where we realize that it's all, not, well, let's not say all, let's be a little kinder than that, but that it's so much of it is based on a fiction, on a fraud. And uh, there's a lot that, for example, aspects of my being, part of the ego formation thing is to create a respectability in social terms that will cut mustard in my society. Well, now there are, him, you, I, I will, there are aspects of myself which don't fit in with the tribal morality. Well, I'm not uh, at an early stage in my development. I'm not in position to grapple with them. So I simply stuff them. I simply let them go, push them down, repress them, suppress them, ignore them. There are also, for most of us, aspects of our being which have been traumatized in some way so that to deal with them with a fragile uh, personality is too traumatic, is too unsettling uh, so that we tend to repress those, put those aside. So there's a whole dimension of myself that I'm not conscious of. And to present to the world a fait accompli, a personality that presupposes that it is that it is integral in itself is a fraud. And I think Dante realizes when he takes the cord off, he realizes that his existence is in many respects fraudulent. Perhaps more peculiar to Dante, but not uh, utterly unique, is the other dimension of fraud. Well, the one that I think he wrestles with in these cantos of the uh, Inferno and that is that he comes to realize that his only access to those unlived vitalities is by virtue of images which are fictions. That is to say, by virtue of the imagination which creates images which give me access or give us or give him access to that so that the great mythologies, whether they are the mythologies that the culture has provided us or the mythologies that the dreaming mind provides me every night, the mythic images are my way of getting at the stuff. So the, so the monster of fraud presents a problem. 
My existence up to this moment has been fraudulent in large measure, and my future prospects involve me with, with future fraud. Fraud in the sense of I must now, I must now uh, conspire with fictions in order to get at the thing which is making my life fictitious. If I, you, you see the kind of double bind that I think Dante is? I think this is what the poem is grappling with here. And Dante, as the creator of fictions, uh, is facing a something of a crisis in terms of resolving this dilemma for himself. Now, let me try to give the background to this. Uh, Plato and Aristotle, as you know, gr uh, wrestled over the question of whether or not uh, the poetic image was uh, was to be trusted. Plato felt it was not, and Aristotle felt it was. This same confusion, in the by the way, in the Hebrew world, that same confusion comes through when you get uh, you get this thing of the difference between the golden calf and the Ark of the Covenant as images. Uh, one is is the is the uh, the breach of faith with the unknowable God. It is an image that is idolatrous, and the other is is a is a uh, the the religious accoutrement which makes it possible for me to maintain faith. So it is still an image, an object, but not a, idolatrous. And you have going through the Hebrew tradition, the prophets leaning occasionally on the second commandment, and wrestling around with this question about images. Can they be trusted? Can they, or can they not? Well, in the Greek world, Plato and Aristotle worked this out. The tension between uh, the trust and the, 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 the uh, one's ability to trust or not trust images goes all the way through, I think, human experience. In Dante's time, uh, it was beginning, there was a breakthrough underway. Uh, for a long time, the opinion of, of Augustine had dominated. Augustine had felt that poetry was uh, suspect, keenly suspect, as opposed to theology. Theology might be occasionally irrational, but poetry felt Augustine was irrational and not to be trusted. It was, it was uh, some, something unworthy of... In other words, it was incapable of bearing up under religious weight. It was entertainment, but it could not do something more significant than that. Now, uh, in the course of the Christian interpretation of the scriptures, they had begun to interpret them uh, at multiple levels. And Dante simply rearticulates what had been a the exegetical habit of, say, the, the Desert Fathers and early Church Fathers and so on, and that is to interpret the Scriptures, particularly the Old Testament Scriptures, uh, in multiple ways. Dante arrives at the fourfold interpretation. There's the literal interpretation uh, of the Red Sea event. Dante uses that as an example. And then there, there are the three, three uh, levels of the allegorical interpretation the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical. The point is that Scripture had been interpreted in different ways, but always 
the literal story was regarded as literal truth. And in Dante's time, something else started to happen. Namely, poets, and Dante, I think, chief among them, began to see that that what what the what the scriptures once you once that multiple interpretation is allowed, what the scriptures allowed to happen is that they allowed the mystical life to unfold. I could then come to regard the Red Sea story as the the moral story of me getting out of my moral Egypt where I am enslaved to uh, the flesh pots or whatever. That's, by the way, as you remember, the flesh pots are just a bowl of stew. Uh, it, it's been <laughs> misinterpreted. Anyway, uh, but whatever, I could interpret it morally or I could interpret it in a deeper way, anagogically or mystically, and I could understand the transition from some, from some Egypt of my being into the desert toward the promised land. And so the multiple interpretation of Scripture had awakened people to this incredible opportunity to come to know the depths of their being by starting with a text and interpreting it. But always, of course, the literal version was considered to be factually true. When the, when the Hebrews went through the Red Sea, at least by one version of the story, there was, in fact, walls of water on either side, and they went through dry shot and all the rest of it. So they considered that factual. The poets, realizing the value of, 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 of uh, sounding my being at all those registers by interpreting something, began to try to write a story which, which could also be interpreted on all those levels, but which at its literal level was fictional. And this was what gave them pause, because this was, there was an implied and to some extent uh, stated sanction against this. It's the very thing that had troubled Plato, it's the very thing that had troubled Augustine, if you start with a fiction, do you get to the same depths that you get to if you, if you start with a fact? Of course, we have now, thanks to more recent biblical research, we understand that the biblical enterprise was doing the same thing all the while. But you understand in the medieval times they didn't understand it at all. So it was some problem. And what we see here, I think, is Dante wrestling with this problem. Can I take the monster of fiction into the journey of truth? And he's troubled by it. And he decides that he can under certain strict circumstances. By the way, the analogy, we don't think, it doesn't seem much to us to say, well, the difference between a poem, which can be interpreted at, in the fourfold way, and a piece of scripture which can be interpreted in the fourfold way is that the scripture is literally true and the poem is not. That doesn't seem to bother us. But I, I tried to think of an analogy in our time. The analogy in our time would be something like uh, a, uh, a, uh, a healer saying 
offering, uh, handing somebody a, a bottle of pills and saying to them, I want you to pretend that this is penicillin, uh, and it will make you better. You see, the idea that you would start with a fiction and that it would, and it would be redemptive was absolutely revolutionary. So it was troubling to them. When Dante sees the monster, he says, Virgil says, Behold the one whose stench fills all the world. This is fundamentally the problem with the world. It is fraudulent. It is based on a lie. And not too many lines later, Virgil is saying, Be strong and daring now, for our descent is by this kind of stairs. We're going to have to climb up on the back of that thing to, to continue our journey. And Dante is very troubled by that prospect. In the Convivio, uh, an earlier work of Dante's, Dante had talked about what he called the bella menzogna, which means the beautiful lie. And he said, one has to resort to the beautiful lie, or one can resort legitimately to the beautiful lie. In, a, in some ways, uh, Dante is, is anticipating, as he anticipated, since everybody, uh, you can say Dante anticipated everybody because everybody profited from Dante. Uh, but you could say Dante anticipated Blake uh, when it comes to the understanding of the imagination. He's much more, he's much more cautious than Blake was. Uh, but he understood that there's this thing called, that he called the bella menzogna, the beautiful lie or the trustworthy lie or the redemptive lie, just to say the fiction that can give me access to the truth, that can give me some tangible uh, uh, mental resource with which to grapple with the mystery of my own being. Well, uh, Virgil says uh, this is our stairway into the pit, and he, perhaps he is speaking not only of uh, he and Dante, but all of us in the Western world particularly. Jacques Maritain, who's a uh, Thomist scholar turned uh, literary Critic, among other things, a tremendous philosophical, insightful man. Maritain says, Art and poetry awaken the dreams of man and his longings and reveal to him some of the abysses he has in himself. And I think this is the dimension that's appropriate here. That art and poetry, creating fictions, uh, creating artifictions, artificial creations uh, give us access to these abysses in ourselves and put us in touch with our longings and our dreams. And then even if we're just trying to uh, reconnoiter what is already there, the English critic John Milton uh, Middleton Murray said, try to be precise and you are bound to be metaphorical. I think of the, in our tradition there are many uh, well, not many, but uh, some in the mystical tradition texts that uh, 
are in many ways a celebration of the season of imagelessness in a person's life, the cloud of unknowing, the dark night of the soul. Uh, the, the upshot of these texts is that w one enters the imageless world. It is the cloud of unknowing. It is the dark night of the soul, you see. And if you read those texts, they are brimmed full of images because it requ we require them, <coughs> even though the, what they're trying to say is that there are none at this point. Uh, so anyway, the thing about images... And Dante's wrestling with them. And we'll come back to this in just uh, in a minute. Now there's a very curious uh, interruption in the flow of things. The curious thing is, having seen the monster, they don't get on it right away. Virgil says to Dante, before you do this, I would like you to go over and visit these uh, sinners who are, who are uh, being punished over there on the verge of the cliff. Uh, they are, if you want to imagine them, I think, uh, pictorially, they are, they are parallel to Dante, if you think of this precipice that goes down into the deeper part of hell, and they are on the edge and he is on the edge. And one of the key differences is that they're going to stay on the edge, and he's going to go in. Uh, so we want to go look at this, these characters and find out what it is about them that... Uh, they come after he sees the monster of fraud, and they represent those who are staying right on that edge of the precipice. They are the usurers. Uh, if we wanted to put not too fine a point out, we could call them the bankers I, uh, or the capitalist. Uh, but I think there's a lot more going on here. They are the. Remember, we're leaving the plane where the where the violent are being punished. Uh, the f fraud being worse than violence. Fra both fraud and physical violence violate something. The key to the sin is the violation. But vi the violent violates something in a, in, a, in a brute, physical, bestial way, and the fraudulent violates something uh, by, by recourse to ingenuity, and therefore it's a more human sin. It's a sin... It's a perversion of the higher of, of, of our higher higher capabilities. So it's a deeper sin in hell. But they are they are the these usurers are the violent against nature and art. And I think they might be there as a warning to Dante, uh, in the sen in the sense that the Old Testament prophets uh, and the Second Commandment and so on represent a warning with regard to the use of imagery. Uh, so I'd like for us to uh, explore this a little bit. I, I should ad admit to you right now, a strange thing happens in, for me when I'm preparing these these uh, sessions. Uh, what's the old saw about the, 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 the squeaky wheel gets the oil or something like that? Well, there's this, what happens is uh, this usurer's business seems, and, and it is in many ways, uh, minor compared to the rest of the stuff that's going on here. But because it puzzled me to no end, and I had the hardest time getting a handle on it, I spent way more time on this than I did on the other thing. Uh, and it, and it, it seems to take on, it took on great significance for me. But I, anyway, I'm, I'm going to dwell on it a little bit uh, simply because it was so puzzling that it would come here. 
If we go back to the problem Dante has faced when he saw the monster, he's going to have to ride the monster down. Virgil has gone to parley with the monster to, to negotiate the terms of the trip. Uh, and the question for Dante is the proper use of fictional imagery. Now, if we think of images uh, as betokening something, not being the thing, but betokening something. I want to just try to use a take take a little language trick here and see if we can't open up what this usury might be. If the image betokens, the idolatry happens when when I no longer recognize that it betokens something other than itself. When I begin to take the token for the thing itself and then begin to traffic in the tokens and not be called beyond them. I think the usurers could be seen as those who are trafficking in the tokens and have, and have lost sight of the fact that they betoken something else. And so they may be here as a warning in that regard. And they're sitting on the edge uh, in, in, a, in a dreary and lifeless way, brushing off these, as we said before, these uh, little tongues of fire, uh, brushing them off their sleeves and backs, and uh, feasting on their earnings, the text says. They're feasting on their earnings, uh, trying to find, uh, I'm, I'm imagining this, trying to uh, think of new ways to, uh, to accrue future profits from past earnings. So that's what, that's what uh, usury might be. Now, what I'd like to do is explore, with the help of some Martin Buber and some other funny business of my own, what I think might be the, the deeper significance of the usurers here. Martin Buber said, all living, all real living, is meeting. Is meeting. The implication is that life is discovered or rediscovered at the meeting place. The meeting place, where I meet my God, myself, my neighbor, my beloved, my world, my death, that life is discovered or rediscovered at the meeting place. I love the fact that the Quakers call their worship service a meeting. I've always thought that was wonderful. It's the meeting. I always meet someone new at the meeting place in the sense that you can't step into the same river twice. I may be meeting a person I've met before, but I'm always meeting someone new at the meeting place. And that's what makes the meeting place so um, so uh, disconcerting for those who are trying to tidy up their lives, because it's always somebody new. Even though I met them yesterday, or every day of my life, today is a new meeting. 
So the meeting place is a funny thing, and a lot of it takes a lot of stamina, and a lot of us run out of it, and would rather not bother. And we don't, lots of times. Lots of times I just don't have the energy to be at the meeting place. So I go to the swap meet instead. So I'd like for us to think about these two places, the meeting place and the swap meet. And the swap meet provides me with just the semblance of meeting. I can trade in the in the things that have come from f past meetings or whatever. I can have an exchange without any real risk. I don't... In order, by the way, the meeting place requires me to be willing to alter in the meeting. It's not a meeting unless I am... Un unless I risk being altered by it. It's not a meeting. Uh, you know, Jung has some interesting writings about the psychotherapeutic uh, encounters. And he says any therapist who is not uh, who is not available for transformation in that therapeutic setting is not going to do anybody any good. He says most of the time the psychotherapist is the uh, it has the more uh, expansive and, uh, and uh, personality and therefore can be of great help to the therapist he says I mean the uh, the, the client because occasionally it's the other way around and the client walks in the door and changes the therapist's life he says you got to run the risk so that one has to put one's own existence on the line at the meeting place well as you know that can be a bother so we but we <laughs> but we long for it. We're afraid of it, but we long for it. So we go to the swap meet. And we exchange, we have another kind of exchange, which has a semblance of the meeting. There is a give and take, uh, but it's not quite the same as a meeting. And perhaps the real economy... Uh, is that we take mementos from the real meeting to the swap meet. And the swap meet has its place too. Uh, I sometimes hear, sometimes we have swap meets here and sometimes we have <laughs> meetings here, and I, I never know. <laughs> <laughs> but the meeting, of course, can be a meeting outside with each other or with the sunset, or with the nighttime, or with whatever, or it can be inside, inside and outside, just a crazy fiction, fictional metaphor. It can be with with God or with myself. It can be, but the, is, the meeting place is a is a is a cosmos, and there's this other cosmos called the swap meet. And I go from one to the other. Well, Buber says every response to the thou binds up the thou in the world of it. I'm quoting here. That is the melancholy of man and his greatness. Every response to the thou, every genuine response at the meeting place, binds up what happens there into the world of the swap meet. Boover goes on. Well, let me go back and read the whole thing. Every response to the thou 
binds up the thou in the world of it. That is the melancholy of man and his greatness. For that is how knowledge comes about, a work is achieved, an image and symbol made in the midst of living things. And I might add that is the incarnation as well. That from that meeting place comes something into the world. And even at the superficial level, when I have, if I don't know how you are, but when I have been to the meeting place, I always want to bring something back. So I come out of the woods with a walking stick, or I come away from the beach with a seashell. Or I, or I come away from a walk with the, the lover with a, with a poem in my head or a flower in my hair. Or one always wants, to bring, always wants to bring something back from the meeting place. So Buber says there is a progressive augmentation of the world of it. And some of this augmentation is made by the usurers who are simply trying to parlay past earnings into future profits. And some of it is made by those who go to the meeting place and bring something back. But Buber says, in general, the world of objects in every culture is more extensive than that of the predecessor. Despite sundry stoppages and apparent retrogressions of the progressive augmentation of the world of it is clearly to be discerned in history. Some of them are the vestigial remains of a meeting. Not perhaps a great percentage, but some of them are the vestigial remains of, the, of a meeting. And those are the ones that concern us. Because it's with regard to those that we can become sinful. The others you can take or leave. Buber says, that which has been changed into an it, the I, the encounter, the response to the thou uh, binds up the thou in the world of it. And then he says, that which has been changed into an it, hardened into a thing among things, has had the nature and disposition to change back, put into it. That which has the status of an object must blaze up into presentness and enter the elemental state from which it came. So that uh, Joe's painting of Job came from the meeting place. It's possible under the right circumstances to behold it and return to the meeting place. That's That's virtually the definition of art. So creativity has to do with the meeting place, going to the meeting place, creating the memento of the meeting place, a memento that can invite others to the meeting place. And the meeting place is where what happens there congeals into a memory, a story, a knick-knack, a symphony, a work of art, an insight, a mood, something from it. 
What we bring from the meeting place, we take to the swap meet. You know, Robert Frost said, everything's got to go to market. <laughs> it's just, you know, that sort of New England groundedness. <laughs> Finally had to take everything to market. So what comes from the meeting place goes to the swap meet. The users, I think, can be seen to be all of us when we do this. The users are those who try to sustain a semblance of meaning by manipulating the mementos from the meeting place instead of returning to the meeting place. So stay staying in the swap meet and manipulating the products that came from the meeting place and never returning. Parlaying what they got at the meeting place into uh, some kind of sustenance, but it does not sustain, of course. And so they never leave the meet they never leave the swap meet. Now I, I want to come back to this thing in a second, but then the story changes, and we go back for a minute to the monster, to Monster Gerion, and uh, now we're back to pro Dante's problem. Problem is uh, having to conspire with fraud-fiction in order to remedy the fraudulent nature of my existence. Meanwhile, Virgil has been working on this problem, too. And so when Dante gets back, there's Gerion. Now, Gerion has the face of a just man. That's the problem, you see. The fraud has the face of a just man, the, the, the body of a reptile, the tail of a scorpion, and the, and the arms and claws of a, of a uh, beast of prey. And Virgil says, Dante, I want you to be very careful and listen to what I'm going to tell you, my boy. I want you to sit on this monster and I'm going to sit between you and the tail. The tail is where the stinger is. And so Virgil is very careful, or to put it the other way, Dante is very careful to put Virgil, who is the personification of reason and wisdom, between himself and the tail. And I think this is Dante's uh, allegorical uh, resolution of his own conflict about using fiction to get at truth. He can do it under certain circumstances. And the circumstances are that he has between him and the thing that can turn it into a a piece of fraud, the wisdom and, ra and reason of Virgil. So that's, and even that, still it's a scary journey. But I think that's a depiction of what Dante is trying to do in his, instead of simply just some flight of fancy where he can just imagine any old thing. Uh, 
uh, stream of consciousness. Dante is going to is 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 a great uh, imaginative genius, but his is not stream of consciousness. As the monster pulls away, it's quite wonderful poetry. This this uh, thick murky air and the monster kind of pulling away like a great craft at sea and turning and beginning to go down is terrifying for Dante. And he says, and he likens his terror to the terror of Phaethon. Phaethon is the, was the son of Apollo. Apollo rode the, the chariot of the sun across the sky every day. Phaethon, as the son of Apollo, demanded from Apollo a, a, a boon uh, as his son. Apollo says, sure, anything. He said, fine, I'd like to drive the chariot of the sun across the sky. And Apollo his forehead and said, oh my God, what have I done? Anyway, he got talked into it, and Phaethon uh, rides the chariot up, and the, he can't control it, and it goes careening wildly, and it's about to just completely scorch the earth, and he is killed by Zeus, Zeus with lightning bolt, because he is going to destroy the world. So that's Phaethon. And the other thing that the person that Dante likens his terror to is Icarus. Very similar story, Icarus and and uh, Daedalus fly up to escape the uh, entrapment in the, uh, in the labyrinth. And Daedalus says to Icarus, don't, wings are made of wax and feathers, don't go too close to the sun, melt the wax. And Icarus says, hey, this is great. Uh, look, Mom, no hands. <laughs> look, Dad, no wings. Goes near the sun, plunges, and is killed. Now, it's interesting that Dante would use these two images because right after that he says, he mentions it was like Phaethon and it was like Icarus who fell while his father was shouting, that way's wrong. That way's wrong. Now, I would like to pause here and see this as a very important transition for Dante and for us. Remember, the cord has just come off. He has entered into a new part of his journey. The voice that says that way is wrong is the voice of the father, or, if you will, the paternal voice. Uh, I think we can associate it with Freud's notion of the superego. That way's wrong. And you know what? It is for the premature, the immature. For, for Phaethon and for Icarus, it's wrong because, number one, they tried to go up. Dante's going down. And number two, they were immature. And so the voice of the superego is the one that says that way's wrong. Now Dante is hearing that voice on his journey down. He still has an echo in his mind of that voice which says that way's wrong. He's actually going into the pit of hell. Surely the superego, or if you will, you want to translate into psychological terms, into the into the into the murkiness of his own unconscious psyche. And the superego would have said, that way is wrong. 
and he's still hearing that voice. Well, I think what we might see here is Dante and us at that point still hearing that parental voice saying, that way is wrong. But now, under the guidance of what we might call the ancestral voice of Virgil. <coughs> so think of the parental voice or the, or the voice of the father saying that way is wrong and the voice of the ancestral, the ancestral voice or the voice of Virgil saying we must be careful but we must go anyway. And it seems to me that that is a is a place where Dante is, and it seems to me it's absolutely universal place. One comes to that place, and it it seems like violating all the norms. Right after one's taken that cord off, that that belt off, seems like violating all the norms. And it would be dangerously violating all the norms if there isn't a Virgil along an ancestral voice there, a spiritual guide there. Well, I wanted to just touch on the journey down because it's, uh, it's, it's done very... This is t so typical the way Dante does things. You have to realize now he's leaving... If, if we can take this chord as being the ego formation stage just for a second, he's leaving... Uh, of course, he did in the dark wood at the beginning as well, but it, I think in a more profound way now, uh, leaving an identity behind, leaving the world of purposes and the world of uh, causality and all that, and entering into something that really is truly mysterious. And he says, this is a play on words here, uh, I think, too. He says, I saw that I was in the air and everything had faded from my sight. I saw that I was in the air and everything had faded from my sight except the beast. He could see nothing except the beast itself. Can you imagine Dante uh, being exiled from all the um, all of the things that would orient him, uh, that would give him some sense of where his existence is. And all he has is this poem. And in the middle of the night, when he looks at that poem, he realizes that he made it up. You see? He realizes that it is a concoction. Now, I think we can understand that he, in some larger sense, he may not have been the concoction of it either, really. But... Uh, but I think when he says here, I saw, I saw that I was in the air and everything had faded from my sight except the beast. I think we can see the scene where, where suddenly, perhaps in an in a, in a intense part of the psychotherapeutic uh, uh, phase, all one has to go on is last Wednesday's dream. You see? Uh, where suddenly that is the only orienting reality. And of course one realizes that it's a fiction. Surely a fiction based in fact, but there's this thing, thing of... Well, he says, but then the beauty of another sense of the poem here, 
everything faded from my sight except the beast. Slowly, slowly swimming, he moves on. He wheels and he descends. But I feel only the wind upon my face and the wind rising. It's very interesting. He just said, I saw that I was in the air. Everything faded from my sight. Sight is our dominant sense. And when it fades, the other senses start to come alive in the way they haven't been. And there are two senses that come alive here. The sense in the inner ear of balance because he feels that, he feels the, the wheeling and descending. But the other one is, the ever so subtle one, is he feels the wind on his face and he feels that it's blowing upward. And that's what tells him that he's going down. But it's so interesting, it's so much like the dark night of the soul or the thought of unknown. Where suddenly one has to resort to these supremely subtle sensibilities that have been overridden by the, by the ones that we usually use. We must rely on these others. I think it's a symbol of what the kind of world he's going into now. All these have to come alive. And he gets to the bottom. Malibolgia is the ten, the ten pits where the uh, maliciously deceitful are being punished. These are the fraudulent ones. This is a great uh, uh, sloping conical shape, inverted conical shape at the bottom of hell where there are ten concentric pits where all these punishments are being visited, leading down finally to the frozen pit of hell at the bottom. And these are the maliciously deceitful. And the ones we're going to visit uh, in today's material, the panderers, the seducers, the flatterers, and then the seminists, in terms of the images we were using a few minutes ago, I think you could say that these are people who have... The usurers stayed at the swap meet and tried to parlay the mementos of the meeting into uh, future prophets instead of going to the meeting place. These sinners went to the meeting place and treated it as though it was a swap meet. And that's their sin, to go to the meeting place and behave as though it's a swap meet. The first circle that he sees he notices that these sinners uh, are parading back and forth. They're passing each other, their heads down, passing each other. And he notices that it's like a, the traffic pattern that he saw, foot traffic pattern that he saw uh, in Rome during the Jubilee, um, at the great Jubilee year in 1300 in Rome. And this is very interesting that he would do this. Uh, even before we get into these centers, we have to notice what's happening. Dante, the fictional date of the poem, the pilgrimage, is Easter week, 1300. The Jubilee celebration of the great Jubilee year was in Easter week, 1300. Dante had been there. He's writing his poem, in actual fact, 12, 15 years later, 
you see, there was no traffic pattern in those days. So what happened during the Jubilee year is that the papal uh, people in charge of handling the traffic uh, decided that they, they'd use this ingenious idea. Well, we'll just kind of separate the bridge, the bridge is where it really got caught, separate the bridge down the middle like they're doing with the Golden Gate Bridge for the celebration. Separate the bridge down the middle and have the people going one direction go on one side and the people going the other direction go on the other. Doesn't strike us as being particularly ingenious, but it was a, quite a breakthrough. And Dante is looking into the pit of hell and he says, you know, it's, it's strikingly similar to that. It's not, a, it's not an idle simile, by the way, because Dante's hated enemy was Pope Boniface VIII. And Pope Boniface VIII was the Pope who put on this, this Jubilee year. And in Dante's estimation, it was a, it was a fraudulent attempt uh, to further aggrandize his own papacy by taking advantage of the fact that it coincided with the turn of the century. You know, it's like having the great, uh, it's like having the bicentennial during your presidency. Um, so Dante uses this as a way of saying, uh, it's a lot like what went on in hell. The panders, seducers, and the flatterers are all, and the flatterers are in the next little trench. These are all people who have, uh, who have, subverted uh, sexual longing. Sexual longing is one of the potent dimensions of the eros impulse, the relational impulse, the longing to go to the meeting place. And these are people who went to that meeting place and who traded and bartered uh, and profited from it, who have trafficked in it, who have gone to the meeting place and treated it as though it were swap meat. And the panderers are those who are the, the pimps and the go-betweens and the arrangers of little adulterous affairs and whatever, uh, who have benefited financially or in terms of their career or in terms of some other leverage from this human longing for connection. And the seducers are those who have taken advantage of, of the longing both of their own and of somebody else's for self-gratification or to further their own uh, ends in some way. So they've gone to the meeting place, but they haven't behaved as though it were a meeting place. They've turned it into a bartering place. And they are being punished by horned demons. And I think this is uh, helpful. We're used to seeing horned demons, but the origin of the horned demon is uh, is largely the the sense the horns represented um, uh, the uh, an adultery that had taken place 
and usually there was the 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 uh, the man who had been cockholded uh, was thought of as having to wear horns as a as a as, because he had been taken in some way. Uh, so the horns represented some perversion of that sexual longing. And it still survives in our language because we have la we ha we perform in in language what the panders and seducers were doing in fact, and that is to render the sexual longing into something that we can that we into something more cynical that we can barter with without having to deal with its deeper implications. So we call it horniness. And if I can get myself or somebody else convinced that that feeling is horniness, then it's easy enough to subvert. In other words, I rob it of its deeper implication that it has to do with the longing for a meeting an ultimate meeting. But if I can get myself and others to believe it's just horniness, then I'm in this realm of hell. <laughs>